Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is Cameron. If I haven't met you before, uh, I would like to meet you. Let's, let's meet after service. Um, okay. We usually have a scripture reading right now, uh, but this is the kind of story I actually think for uh, this particular one, it's better if we just let the shock of this story hit us uh, kind of right whenever it comes. So we'll just jump in. But I want to preface it by, by saying this. Um, as a genre of either movies or film or books or movies or film, movies slash film, books, uh, TV, whatever, I'm not really super into horror stuff. Um, that's just me. Uh, I usually find it kind of tacky uh, or just off-putting, kind of disturbing, I don't enjoy it, uh, or just, just like everything in terms of character and story gets sacrificed just for shock value, like shocking for shock value's sake. That's kind of my knee-jerk reaction to most kind of like horror stuff. Um, maybe you're that way, maybe you're not. But it, it, at least in my opinion, very occasionally, a truly good sort of horror movie or horror novel will come along once in a while. And one of the things that a good one can do is, in a world as sort of despiritualized, sort of disenchanted as ours is, um, it can remind us of the reality of genuine spiritual evil. Or, like in a modern, middle-class, generally safe world, kind of a hermetically sealed world that, that many of us, at least part of the time, live in, it can remind us of the presence of real danger. Um, we need these reminders, actually, because spiritual evil is real, and danger is real, whether we care to acknowledge them or not. And the story we're about to read and look at this morning is it almost functions as this little horror story like thrown in the middle of Mark's gospel. And I actually, I know there's a few first time visitors here and you picked basically the weirdest Sunday you could have possibly, <laughs> possibly attended. So I apologize for that. Uh, but that's what happens when you take the, <laughs> the Bible on its terms, verse by verse, you end up with some weird weeks and we have to make sense of them because it's, it's there and it's actually good. Um, so, this story, it, yeah, it's like this little horror story thrown in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, and it too reminds us of these dark, sad, disturbing realities. Uh, but even more than that, of course, there's going to be good news at the end of this, because more than that, it reminds us that Jesus' light is bright enough to cast away all darkness, and that his power is infinitely greater than even an army of demons, which is what we're going to encounter in this story. Um, and that his grace is sufficient even for the most spiritually lost person. So there's serious darkness in this story we're about to read, but there's, there's good news that's even better. Um, so let's jump in. Well, maybe not just yet. I just want to remind you. Last week, we looked at the story of Jesus calming, calming the storm. And uh, we, so just remember, what, what, the, what has just happened for the, for the disciples that are traveling with Jesus is that they were out on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of this horrifying storm that, that scared them literally to death. They all thought they were going to die. And the only thing they could do is to go and wake Jesus up, who weirdly happened to be sleeping through the storm. They wake Jesus up, and then they see him supernaturally with the sound of his voice calm the waters, calm the wind. And 
apparently that same night, the boat continued to cross the Sea of Galilee and ended up on the southeastern side of the lake um, in the region of the city Gerasa, which is this region called the Decapolis, which is, we don't need a ton of detail on this, but it's made up of 10 cities known for exemplifying Greek culture, Greek customs, um, Greek ideals. And so they've left Israel. They've landed on a part of the Sea of Galilee that's actually not Israel's territory. Um, And they've docked in Gentile land for the first time in Jesus' ministry. And it's probably still nighttime. It's probably the same night as the storm. And remember, the disciples' response to seeing Jesus calm the storm was not like, oh, now we have peace. It wasn't, oh, what a wonderful Savior. It was fear. They were terrified at the end of that story. Um, and so probably still anxious, anxious with fear, their heart's still beating quite a bit. They're, they're, it's still nighttime and they land in foreign territory. Um, and it's the middle of the night. And here's what they see. Let's read the first few verses. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And we'll pause there. So nervous and anxious, maybe here's what they're going to find some reprieve. They get onto the shore and this guy runs up to them looking crazy and feral, broken chains, probably the binding still hanging from his wrists, skin probably rubbed raw from him raging against them. He had self-inflicted cuts all over his body. The Gospel of Luke tells us, gives us another detail that just really completes the picture that he was naked. He's shrieking, he's screaming, and he's running straight for them. Mark tells us this man was oppressed and possessed by demons, which clouded his mind, caused him to self-harm, gave him unnatural strength, and many had tried to subdue him, but nobody was strong enough. And this man had a reputation, evidently, that extended far and wide, because he's terrifying. So this scene is like a scene from a horror movie, and it is meant to make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Or it might provoke another reaction in you, which is like kind of like laughter. You might chuckle and go, are you serious? Does Mark, whoever he was, does he expect me to believe that this kind of thing can actually happen? Your response might be, oh, gee, okay. The Bible, there's the Bible again, full of fairy tales. This, this, the presence of this demon-possessed man doesn't sit easy with us for lots of reasons. Um, but, but, but one of those reasons is that it's, it's sort of an unabashed, unavoidable reminder of the Bible and Christianity's distinctly supernaturalist worldview. Um, the Bible claims that we live in such a world where immaterial, evil spirits can and do exist and can and do enslave and abuse God's image bearers, which is every person that's ever lived. Um, So real spiritual evil 
Um, let's, let's, let's talk about the spiritual piece of that for a second. So whether, whether you came to believe in Jesus on a road that began, began with God raised Jesus from the dead, you came to believe that somehow this man who was publicly crucified and came out of the tomb, that this really happened, he really raised from the dead, that, that, that there's no other explanation for how this movement we call Christianity took off unless he really did appear again to his followers. And then you work backwards from there. Or whether you begin with the idea, as many do, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and worked it out from there. You ought to be, become incre- be becoming increasingly used to this idea that our universe is not a closed material system, as many, as many say. It's not closed because God acts upon his creation from outside of it. And it's not material for that reason and because we're told God has created both material and physical things, people, beings, and he's created immaterial or spiritual creatures, people, beings as well. And for whatever it's worth, maybe this is meaningful to you, maybe it's not, but I would just, I would just say uh, for, for whatever trouble we have kind of instinctively coming to a story like this, or thinking about supernatural things, to whatever extent that's true, um, severe skepticism around the spiritual or the supernatural is is somewhat novel, both historically and globally. I don't know if you're aware of that or, or not, but it's the truth. It's the truth. What I mean is that most people, for most of human history, uh, on the, around the planet today have no trouble believing in spiritual realities. Um, our, our, our empiricist skepticism is a bit novel. It's a bit Western. It's a bit modern or postmodern. Um, and we can turn our eyes up arrogantly or t- turn our noses up arrogantly at all the sort of, at the majority of human experience throughout time and across the globe if we want to, but we should at least be aware that that's what we're doing. C.S. Lewis called that chronological snobbery. Um, There are other terms we could throw in there as well. Uh, But I suggest in keeping with most people from in most places for most of human history that we say, no, there is a real spiritual realm as the Bible says there is. Um, Secondarily, it's not just the existence of spiritual, but but it's spiritual evil here that's in view. Note that the spirits here, these unclean spirits, these demons, are genuinely evil. They've taken control of a man's life and they're destroying him. They've clouded his mind, changed his personality, reduced him to a shrieking terror. And they've used his mouth and his tongue to speak through him without his consent. They've kept him away from community in isolation, in places not meant for humans to live. They've led him to self-harm, to cut himself. And sure, he's powerfully strong, like a beast, but not like a man. This is a reminder of the truism that Satan comes always to steal and to kill and to destroy. And you want to take that down far enough, you get this. You get this. Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy where God's loving desire is for his people to flourish and Satan's is for them to agonize. Um, so this, this passage makes us confront the presence of real spiritual evil in the form of these demons oppressing this man. 
The story also reminds us, uh, on a more lighthearted note, of Jesus' ministry amongst the unclean, which would have been a theme any Jewish reader would have just been struck with. We've got Jesus coming and encountering an unclean spirit in a Gentile region full of unclean people, dealing with this man who came from the tombs, which were about the most unclean thing you could possibly touch in terms of the Jewish religious system. Uh, Later in verse 13, we're going to see that there were pigs nearby, which were the most unclean of all animals. And Jesus wasn't afraid. You see that? In fact, Jesus said, we're going to, Jesus directed them to go and land here, and he walks right into this area, not afraid of having his cleanliness tarnished by the uncleanliness around him. Instead, he makes the unclean clean by his presence. He doesn't get tarnished by it. He makes it clean. That's always what Jesus does. So there's something religiously transgressive here about Jesus coming and engaging with this man in this place and under these circumstances. And that ties into a third idea is that this story also reminds us of Jesus' ministry toward a new people group. Jesus' ministry was intentionally first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, but this story is an early preview here in Mark chapter 5 of the fact that uh, much to the surprise of, of many of the Jews who thought the Messiah was merely for Israel, that he's actually for the whole world that the good news of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, the coming of the kingdom of God, the invitation to come be a part of all of this by grace through faith is always intended to go out to all people to the ends of the earth. God is building for himself a new people made up of every tribe and tongue and nation from every culture and ethnicity and this journey across the lake to the Decapolis was perhaps this little object lesson to the disciples not to lose their heart or their vision for all people being welcomed into God's kingdom. And you'll, if you know the story, when Jesus later on after his resurrection and his appearance to them, he commissions them to go and make disciples of all nations, even to the ends of the earth. We get a little preview here in the life of Jesus. So that's the story. That's the start of the story. Jesus encounters this man and it's terrifying. And it's loaded with theological significance. But let's keep reading. So what happens? Verses 6 through 13 say this. When he saw, this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to the man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And just pause, ooh, shudder at that. My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down into the steep bank, into the sea, and drowned in the sea. Can this story get any weirder or creepier? And can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? About 2,000 pigs rushing down and drowning in the sea. A few observations here. 
The demons, the demons reveal here that this isn't just one demon oppressing this man, but a legion, which means thousands, who had overtaken him. And I don't remember where I heard this image. I think it was a long time ago, but um, I heard someone describe this man like, like he's like a human beehive, like thousands of demons buzzing around, in and out, coming and going. That image stuck with me. And the demons rightly identify Jesus. They call him Jesus, the son of the most high God, the God that's higher and above all these other little gods that would have been in, you know, believed in in this, uh, uh, this Gentile region. But remember, simply identifying Jesus correctly is not the same thing as having a saving trust in him. James 2.19 reminds us, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Trust is something else. And notice that the demons immediately recognize they're at Jesus' mercy here. They don't try to fight him. They just say, hey, we know that, you know, you have power over us. Will you send us into the pigs? And they have no right to demand anything of Jesus, of course. In fact, they've just been torturing this man. What right do they have to demand any kind of treatment from Jesus? And in fact, Matthew's gospel tells us, when, when Matthew tells the story, he tells us that they knew that Jesus was going to be their tormentor. He was going to be the one who administered their final fate, which is their torment and destruction. And they say, have you come before the time? And Mark's narrative doesn't even let us raise the question of whether enough Jesus is powerful enough to deal with these guys. It's assumed. The, the same Jesus that we've seen show power over the material world itself, over sickness and death, over demons and other stories. Uh, you name it, Jesus is shown to be effortlessly more powerful and more capable, and he is here again. Even still, Jesus does what they ask. He sends them to the pigs. And that's weird, okay? <laughs> Let's not just be our good Bible students like, oh, yes, 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 the Bible. Mm -hmm. No, that, this is weird. What is going on here? Jesus sends them into these pigs, and then they go drown themselves. And unfortunately, I wish it did. The text does not tell us why Jesus honored their request. So we have to speculate. We have to speculate. Could be right, could be wrong here, but here's my, here's my speculation. I think more likely than not, it was to demonstrate to the witnesses and to the later hearers just how dire this man's situation was. They knew it was bad. This guy had a reputation for being this monster, almost out of a horror movie. But it was even worse than that because when he cast the demons out, it wasn't one pig, it wasn't two pigs, it wasn't 20 pigs, it wasn't 100 pigs, it wasn't 1,000 pigs, it was 2,000 pigs that were immediately destroyed by these demons. Maybe Jesus just wanted to, to, to allow the, everyone to know just how much affliction this man had experienced and just how dangerous these demons really were. The fact that, that they made the pigs, the demons made the pigs run straight into the water to drown is a reminder of just how sick and destructive these evil spirits really are. Again, they come to steal, they come to kill, they come to destroy, and they desire to do it to every one of God's children. And I would pause here to say, we, I, I talked about this book, um, I don't remember when it was. Uh, I don't assume all of you would necessarily remember every little illustration I use either, but there was this book I talked about a few, uh, I don't know, in January, February, I had just read it. It's called Strange Rites, uh, and the author's name is uh, Tara Isabella Burton. 
And this, it's a really fascinating book. It's basically about kind of this, this larger trend amongst largely millennials and Gen Z uh, folks who basically are in the habit of, of kind of remixing and picking and choosing from different sort of religious traditions and spiritual practices and you know, wellness and health issues and kind of cobbling together sort of unique religious uh, kind of, she calls them like these bespoke, self-tailored, self-made religious systems that work for them. I don't really like what the Bible has to say about sex necessarily, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go take a Buddhist sexual ethic or something. But, oh, I do like the fact that it says this, so I'll grab that. And this kind of thing is cool about witchcraft and the occult, so maybe I'll take that. And I also like this about yoga. You're just kind of piecing together a thing, and you say, oh, this, this is my religion now. This is what gives me meaning. This is how I'm going to live my life. This is what I'm going to do. And that's a whole interesting subject unto itself, but, but my point for now, what, the thing that connects to this is she talks a lot about, and you've probably seen this, um, occult kind of spiritual practice, specifically witchcraft, is like it's booming right now. Like I don't know if you remember like a group of, uh, one that made the headlines and she wrote about in the book was whenever uh, like this large group of, of witches, self-proclaimed witches, decided to like come together publicly to try to cast a hex on Brett Kavanaugh when he was being added to the Supreme Court. It was just like made headline news, witches banding together <laughs> to do this. I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't know what's going on in his life right now. I don't know if it worked or not, but uh, <laughs> this is like becoming pop, pop culture, normal, like wit witchcraft. Yeah, we just do witchcraft. The, the, the little flower shop down from my house sells like incantation candles and stuff now. Nobody bats an eye. I'm just like into it now. So uh, here's, here's my point. Um, I don't think most, mo most people, they either do it kind of as kind of a kitschy, like, oh, isn't this kind of edgy or cute, or, or I don't know, there, there's, there's some kind of allure to it. Um, but whether they do it thinking there's real connection with the spiritual world or not, uh, this story reminds us, Dark spirits are real, and they're not to be played with. And lots of times people begin giving themselves over to these things incrementally, wanting you know, good fortune or wanting power, maybe, or wanting the ability to you know, cast a spell on someone that they don't like or whatever it is. And you make these, people make these little deals, uh, and little by little, the more we give, the more ultimately we become oppressed by these things. And one of my favorite, one of the weirdest books C.S. Lewis ever wrote if you have never read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, it's amazing. But the third book, it's like these two books about going to different planets, and it's amazing. And then the third book is set in a university on Earth, and basically nobody goes to space. It's very weird. For the first half of the book, you're like, what does this have to do with the other two books I've read? But uh, over the, it's called That Hideous Strength. I really recommend it. It's a wild book. But you, you come to discover over the, this is a spoiler, I'm sorry, over the course of this book, that uh, basically all these administrators at this university have slowly like been giving themselves over to these demons. And they, they've done it to gain power, they've done it to sort of gain sure footing and like they, what they think the spiritual revolution that's going to happen. But at the very end of the book, like all the people that have done this, they ultimately get devoured and destroyed by the thing they thought they were getting power from. They are powerless underneath. Powerful illustration of these principles. This stuff is not to be played with. It's not to be sold as sort of kitschy items, you know, in trendy stores in Portland. It's deep and it's dark and it destroys. It destroys.
The pig's fate is a second reminder of this dynamic. Satan and his demons, I'll say it again, they come to steal, they come to kill, they come to destroy. But contrast this with Jesus. Let's go to the next section. The herdsmen fled. Of course they fled. I would run, I would run for the hills. <laughs> like, that's the most natural thing that happened in the story. They ran away, and they told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, and he was clothed, and he was in his right mind, and they were afraid. And I'll, I'll pause there for a second. We get the contrast of the demons with this man with Jesus. Jesus, who must have stayed a while, enough time for the people to run away, tell the story, and for people to come back and see Jesus sitting there ministering to this man, offering comfort, talking with him probably, maybe sharing some food with him. What grace on Jesus' part. Again, not, not worried about being corrupted or made unclean by this man, but just here to cleanse, here to bring peace, here to maybe be the first person to sit down and instead of trying to chain him and subdue him, to just listen and care and love and extend fellowship to this man. It's a beautiful image. The demons would steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And you see it right there, even if subtly, in verse 15. We'll keep reading. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-oppressed man, demon-possessed man, and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And there's a lot more we could unpack in this story, but I just want to make, I just want to talk about three things. And that's the responses to what happened. What happened? What, how did people respond? We see three responses. The last one we see is astonishment or marveling. There at the very last phrase, everyone marveled. People were amazed. Some people were amazed. Wow, this is crazy. This is amazing. Did not see this coming. How did this happen? Whoa. But in Mark's gospel, this kind of response is not presented as like deep spiritual insight. It's almost neutral. People are amazed by Jesus. Wow, Jesus is powerful. Wow, Jesus can work miracles. This is amazing. But will that amazement move to trust? Will it turn into love? Will it turn into discipleship and following after Jesus? That's the question. Anytime people are amazed or astonished or marveling, the question is, what are you going to do with that? Does it sit as just a curiosity? Huh, that was wild. Or... Do you throw yourself at this Jesus' feet and follow after him? So some marveled. It's kind of a neutral response. Wow, isn't that amazing? But there was another reaction. Fear and rejection. They were afraid 
And then they began to beg, verse 17, beg Jesus to depart from the region. Get out of here, Jesus. What is that response? What is that response? Well, probably a couple of things. One, it might have just been the sheer fear of Jesus' power. This was a polytheistic uh, Greek, you know, Greek cultural context. They believed in many gods. They had many miracle workers, many people who would, you know, maybe try to engage the, spirit, the spirits in this way, but never had they ever seen one, someone with the authority like Jesus that just says, go, you're gone. Maybe they're afraid of him just because of his power. I think that's probably part of it. Secondarily, the reason they wanted him to leave possibly was because it just so happened here that the salvation of this man from this horror movie circumstance resulted in serious economic consequence for these people. You see that, right? The demons just trashed their whole herd of pigs, which is their livelihood. And the point here is not that we shouldn't be concerned for animals. I believe Christians should be deeply concerned for all of creation, including animals. It's okay to look at this and go, oh, that's horrible. It is horrible. Um, nor is the point that we shouldn't be concerned for the herdsmen's economic welfare. We should. This is a tragedy that they lost their herds. We're not supposed to go, oh, that's interesting, or that's funny, or oh, no big deal. This is a, this is a nightmare. But instead, I, I think the point, the point here is that for Jesus, in the words of commentator James Edwards, he put it well, he said, the rescue and restoration of one person is more important than vast capital assets. Compared to the redemption of a human being, the loss of the swine herds, considerable though it is, does not rate mentioning. I think that's right. The point here is that this man was saved from the darkest thing many of us could even imagine. And yes, there's other tragedy involved here, but it doesn't even rank in terms of what, what, what Jesus is out to do, liberating the oppressed spiritually from their oppression. And another commentator, he made this connection. I'm just going to read this. I thought it was so good. He, he, he gives an illustration of a similar kind of thing here. Here's what he says. He says, concern for the bottom line may outweigh concern for those caught in the grips of suffering. Calvin Stowe, for example, a professor of biblical studies, lived in the shadow of his more internationally famous wife, Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of the anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. When she toured England, he preached before a large crowd gathered to observe anti-slavery day. And he told the listeners in no uncertain terms that they were hypocrites. They listened, or they were proud that slavery had long since disappeared in England, but 80% of the cotton picked by slaves in the southern states was bought by England. And Stowe said, slavery would die in America if England would boycott its cotton, and went on to ask, are you willing to sacrifice one penny of your profits to do away with slavery? And the crowd booed. And the crowd booed. I think part of what's going on here in these people's reaction, Jesus, get away from us, 
is that they wanted the broken status quo instead of the dramatic, even destabilizing goodness and healing that Jesus brought. And that is tragic. But if we're honest, we do that with all kinds of things. Jesus messes up our stuff, doesn't he? He messes up our plans. I thought my life was going to go one way, and then Jesus got a hold of it, and I, well, crap, I got to be faithful to him. And now things are not the way I thought they would be. And it is worth it. It is worth it to be with the king, but it, it involves suffering. And it involves laying down our desires, laying down the things that we want, laying down our economic welfare sometimes. To be honest, to be faithful, to have integrity to Jesus. Jesus messes up our stuff, but it is always, it is always, always for our deepest good. And it's a tragedy that these people couldn't see that. And instead, they ask him to get away from here. And you know what Jesus did? He honored them. He said, okay. Got in his boat. He left. Man, to stand in the presence of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the one true God in the flesh, the one who alone can bring healing to our deepest needs, to say, get out of here. It is a tragedy. But there's another response. Not just amazement, not just fear and rejection of Jesus, but a begging to stay with Jesus. And that's the man. This man had experienced supernatural liberation from Jesus, complete healing, and he was sitting with Jesus in peace. And he had the right response. Let me come with you. Let me stay with you. Let me be with you. I'm begging you, Jesus. And, you know, it was the right response, even though Jesus had a different plan for this man. Jesus' plan was for this man to go and share the good news of what Jesus had done for them. And isn't that weird? Almost every other miracle story in Mark so far, Jesus is like, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, keep it quiet, keep it secret. And it does make us go, well, how come in this case he's saying go and tell everyone? I think it's because he's in a Gentile area. Remember, the secrecy so far has had to do with Jesus evading an early death. He's not trying to go to the cross before his time. He still has more teaching to do, more people to heal, you know, more ministry to accomplish before the time comes. But out here, he said, go and tell everybody. Go and tell everybody. Go and share the good news. And the man does. He goes and he begins to proclaim in the Decapolis, the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. I guess I didn't look up to see if this is technically, technically correct, but, correct, but I guess he's the first missionary to the Gentile world. This demon-possessed horror show of a man. That's amazing. That's beautiful. Um... And you know what? You and I, we're not so different from this man. And I don't know. I, I mean, some of us may be dealing with spiritual dark stuff right now. I, I don't know your story. I would assume in Portland, there's lots of people who are in over their heads with dark spiritual things that they don't really understand. 
But whatever your circumstance, whether overtly spiritually oppressed or just in the subtle ways that we all are with our pursuits and the things that, you know, it's often, it's often the case in, in our world, in our context, like in the modern West, he, Satan doesn't have to use this overtly freaky stuff when he's got an iPhone, you know? Seriously, he's got an iPhone. What else does he need to do that stuff for? He can keep us all glued to this thing 10 hours a day, you know, indulging our worst impulses, whether it's sex or money or jealousy or, or career or whatever. You know, we've just got this. So whether it's overtly spiritual stuff or, or subtly spiritual stuff, stuff we don't think of as spiritual, there is not a person on this planet who doesn't need the healing power of Jesus. We were all dead in our sin justly do the righteous judgment of God. But Jesus has come. God has sent him. Don't pit Jesus and God the Father against one another. God, the triune God and his perfect plan, started this rescue mission, sending Jesus, the second person, into this world to come and suffer, die in our place, to offer forgiveness and freedom and healing. Have you experienced this before? Have you been walking with Jesus for some amount of time? Recognize you're not so different and praise God that he saved you. That today, as we sing, as we take communion, as we are here gathered together, praise him in response for what he's done to you, whether it's saving you from a legion of demons or from addiction to your phone or like whatever it is, or maybe you're still stuck in the middle of some of those things, but regardless, you know he loves you through them and you know you're secure in the blood of Jesus. Praise him. Praise him today. And have you never encountered the forgiving grace of Jesus? Well, may today be the day that you repent and believe and trust the good news of Jesus, that he is more powerful than whatever thing is oppressing you and whatever thing is you think keeping you from the good graces of God. Nothing can. Nothing can. So trust him. Maybe for the first time today, if you did, come, come talk to me. There's no better decision you can make. What a story, huh? <laughs> what a story. I'm glad it's in there. There's beauty in this story, as ugly and as weird as it is. Jesus is good, amen? amen. Let's pray.